When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Kaylee Llewellyn is a Welsh scriptwriter and performer who created and wrote the BAFTA award-winning series In My Skin. She has written for shows including Killing Eve, Casualty and Stella and in 2019 was named one of BAFTA's Breakthrough Brits. And today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Hello Kaylee, how are you doing? I'm doing very well and I'm so ecstatic to be here because I'm a, I'm a big fan. Oh, that's nice. I never know how to <laughs> keep when people say things like that to me, but that is very, very kind of you. So obviously you're a writer uh, and this is all about writing letters. Are you a prolific letter writer? No, I'm not actually. And I've been listening to your podcast before I knew I was going to come on it and it was making me think... I want to start doing that again. I used to when I was younger. When I first moved to London, I'd write letters to my nan and my mum all the time. And then I just stopped. And it, emails, just they just don't cut the same. No, they don't cut the same, although it is better than nothing. So do you have any letters that you have kept, like special letters? Yes. So I have kept every letter that my nan and my mum sent me when I first moved to London. I've got them in a box and I actually have a bone to pick with you because I have been sobbing <laughs> uncontrollably since about 1.30am this morning. It's now 5pm. Because so I woke up, I knew I was going to talk about my nan today. I woke up at 1.30am thinking about her. And then I thought, I've got to go and read the letters. And so I've been reading the letters and rereading the letters and reread. And I've not stopped sobbing. I've, like my, I sound like I've got a blocked nose and it's because I've been crying. <laughs> Oh, so you have all of the letters from your nan. Since I moved to London, so not not necessarily things she gave me when I was a kid, but yeah, I moved here in 2006 and she passed in 2016, so 10 years worth. Yeah. Worth of letters. I like that you call her nan as well. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I have nans, not grandmas, and both my children's grandmothers wanted to be nan as well. But I found... In posh company, they don't have nuns. Grandma, when I was little, I was always like, people who have grandmas are posh, aren't they? Because nanny is something else to them. I'm like, do you mean your mum's mum? Yeah, nanny's the au pair or something. 
Yeah. I like that you have a nanny. That is lovely. So you've kept all those letters. What a treasure trove. Mm-hmm. So you have those in voice notes. They've begun there. Exactly. That's what I've been thinking about today. I've got to start putting pen to paper more. Yeah, definitely. I think that you don't cry over a voice note, do you? You don't feel that lovely rush of nostalgia. Although some emails, I think, I can reread emails from you. And even, especially when people have died, incidental ones like, can you make sure you buy a toilet roll and things like that, take you back to those moments. But um, it's not the same as having a letter that you accidentally find sometimes, like when you move house or when you're clearing out a room or your life is changing usually in those moments when you find those letters. It's because something is changing in your life. They just sort of stop you in your tracks. So Mm. it's good to write letters. So I've asked you to prepare three different letters all about people who have affected your life in some way. So starting with the person who means the world to you, who would your first letter be to? That would be my partner, Emily. So tell me about Emily. When did you meet? How long have we been together? We met on the 15th of September 2016 and we were set up by some mutual friends and it was one of those like actually quite offensive things where (laughs) we know each other so tangentially one of my friends knew someone who went out with a boy who lived next door to Emily and they were talking one night and it was like oh has Kaylee met a girl yet and my friend was like no and then she was like I I think I, I actually know a lesbian I think my boyfriend might live next door to a lesbian should we set them up so I just got this photo of Emily. It happened all the time. <laughs> Less so nowadays, but I could definitely tell a story where people like my nan would have said things like, oh, I know a gay. Maybe yeah. get on with the gay that I know. It's exactly what it is. I, w- I wish I could say that when they eventually set us up that I was like, no, of course I don't like her. Why would I like her? It's bizarre that I would like her. You wouldn't think that of straight people, but instead I instantly thought she was incredible. <laughs> so, God damn it. Yeah. Hard to be proven, Kaylee, and you missed it. I missed it. I'll shake my fist at the sky. But yeah, we sort of went on this weird group date where our mutual friends came along the first time we met, which at the time I found really cringeworthy. But in hindsight, I think it was actually really good because I think you fast track what you understand about a person when you see them interact with their friends and the way their friends treat them. So instantly, I think she saw a different side of me. I think I, I think previously I was actually like awful at dating and would like come across as really cocky and talk too much and bluster too much and just seem quite awful. And maybe I did a bit of that with Emily, but I think by seeing my friends who are amazing, she might have also gone, well, she's got nice friends who love her. So maybe she's all right. Do you know what I mean? I often like a person's friends more than I like them. Like, sometimes you're like... There's an episode of Friends like that, isn't there, where they want to go out with the guy, but but Monica doesn't like him. Yeah. If people have, like, really great friends, you think, well, they must be all right. Exactly, yeah. You were set up. I've got to say, I've only in my life ever known one couple who were set up by their friends for that to be successful, and it's still early days, so... 
could still go south. Thanks. Thanks for your optimism. <laughs> you're not early days. You're considerably longer oh, days. Oh, oh. I set some of my friends up, but I've never really... It always seems cringeworthy to me. It seems like it could... It has such potential for cringeworthiness. So it's good to hear that it can be successful. It's miraculous, really. It's just like sort of throwing two random people together. I can't, I can't actually believe that it worked out, but somehow it did. So tell me a bit about Emily then. So what does Emily do? So we've been together now for just over five years. I met her, I'd just turned 30 and I was coming out of a year of kind of extreme grief. I'd had six family members die in one year. The final death being the April of that year and I met her in the September. So I was kind of a broken woman, I think. And I was sort of trying to plough on with life, but whilst also feeling like I'd lost any anchor or any understanding of, you know, you know, you sort of have a vision of, of at least some things that you think my life is going to go that way. And it had all been blown apart. And I, and I was sort of going through this realisation that any semblance of control that any of us thinks we have we actually do not. And it's only just sort of folly to even think that you do. To say I was in a good place sounds weird. Good place in the sense that I was like, this isn't going to break me. It's not going to define me. I'm going to rebuild. I'm learning. I was in the process of learning some kind of like important life lessons. But similarly, my mental health wasn't great. And I was having anxiety attacks for the first time in my life. And it didn't really feel like there was anything I could trust in. Like, I didn't trust that people were going to turn up to meet me, but I also didn't trust that they were going to stay alive. Do you know what I mean? Like, any time a friend didn't text me back, I was straight at, they're dead. And and I can't say that's completely gone now. It's, it's, it's better. With anxiety sufferers to cat- catastrophize like that. So, it, you know, similarly, if my husband doesn't answer, if I'm on a long journey and I'm ringing to say I'll be home in like an hour or something, and he doesn't answer the phone, I just immediately assume that I'm going to go home and find him dead. It's such a weird stupidity that rationally, when I'm saying it out loud, I feel like an absolute idiot. But I think, Mm. I start to think, well, you've got to prepare yourself for the scene that you're going to find. So it's better to be prepared. Like, what is that? That's crackers. But, you know, I think that that is what trauma and certainly bereavement Mm. does to you. When you learn that people die, sometimes suddenly... That's your expectation. Yeah, it's like you know intellectually that people can die and that's fine. And then when you learn it in your gut and your heart that people can die, that's when it changes you. I actually think it's probably a bit of a survivor's instinct. Do you know what I mean? Because you start going, okay, okay, prepare. Life as you know it is over. Your husband's dead. On this train now, start to deal with that. What are you going to do for the kids? (laughs) You know? I remember when my son was little and you'd be frightened like in the night time because you're obsessed that they're going to stop breathing at any moment constantly checking them all the time Uh, I only did it with my first one didn't check the second one was over it by then but um, (laughs) I remember thinking now he hasn't cried all like for at least four hours so he's either just sleeping through or he's dead and it would be better to find out that he was dead after I'd had a full night's sleep (laughs) very sensible maybe I should go to sleep in order to prepare for this horror, it will be better if you've had a full eight hours. He, he's gone either way, so you might as well get 40 winks. <laughs> exactly. He's gone either way. However, even though I'd have that conversation in my head, I'd always just go and bloody check. And he was always fine. Yeah, that's the way it goes, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, a crazy thing. But Emily came into my life when I was th- there and we went out initially for like six weeks and then she broke up with me, which devastated me because it was one of those things where in my head I was like, this is her. She's the one, like th- this is going to be it. And I think what she had perceived that I didn't realise until afterwards is that I just simply wasn't ready. I wasn't okay. I wasn't well I was I you know I just I just needed time so she broke up with me I was devastated we had about two weeks apart and then we started kind of hanging out but as friends and what then transpired was this sort of like six month courtship almost like Victorian women's well with I don't know if we've had Victorian lesbians um definitely did even though Queen Victoria didn't believe in them Yeah, I mean, we had them, but we were sort of stepping out together. Do you know what I mean? We'd sort of just like go on day trips and go for dinner and go for drinks and tell each other everything about our lives. And But, you know, without the relationship aspect. What happened over the course of that six months is that every time I thought she wasn't going to turn up or we'd arrange a a meeting and I'd think she won't be there. She won't come. She's going to cancel last minute. And every time she did show and she was on time and she didn't let me down and she was always there, just over the course of six months, I began to trust and feel safe. And so then eventually it was April 2017 when we properly got back together again. But with this wealth of like, I just knew her inside out. And so I just felt safe with her. Yeah, she's she's been that person ever since. But weirdly, this to go a bit woo-woo on you, me and Emily are both a bit woo-woo and a bit spiritual. And she saw a shaman who said... <laughs> Here we go. Now we're, now we're cooking with gas. Um, <laughs> I do a whole lot of ridiculous rituals here every day that everybody just accepts and tolerates. So you see you shake, I'll, I'll bow to an enormous gold mace. So it's, but, it's only as bad as each other. We're on the same wavelength. Yeah, this shaman said to her that actually we have known each other in many other lives. Most prominently, a time when Emily was a Victorian prostitute and I was one of her clients, a male client who wanted to save her. A bit Richard Gere and Pretty Woman, but um, it was Victorian times. And that I was trying to save her from her life and that we'd come back together in this life to take care of one another and be kind to each other. Have you and as much- of turning that into a script? I have, uh, yeah. Maybe that is the next thing. But that is how we felt the moment we met. We both said we've known each other before and it's felt like that ever since. And we are, of, of all that, you know, of course we have our problems and we weather storms, but we are always respectful of each other and we are always kind to one another. And I think that's the kind of bedrock of our relationship. Yeah, well, that is, I mean, she should be grateful for you to try and to get her out of Victorian prostitution. I do remind her of that often. When I feel like she's not quite appreciating all I've done for her in this life, let alone the previous ones. You do the dishwasher because I saved you from Victorian prostitution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you will be together forever, you think? That's it now? Having been through as much grief and shock as I've been through, I don't think forever is ever something you can bank on. But what I can bank on is that she has been the most wonderful influence on my life and I won't ever regret a second that I've spent with her. Oh, that's so nice. Lucky Emily. Lucky me. If you were going to sign off a letter to Emily, how would you uh, sign off the letter to tell her how much you appreciate her? 
Emily, I'm so proud that you're my partner. I watch the way you communicate with people and I just think, God, she's bloody great, isn't she? And I love moving through the world with you. In my mind, there's nothing you can't do. You speak a lot of languages, you play a lot of instruments, you draw beautifully, you write even more beautifully, you have a deep connection with nature. You somehow just seem to like know the names of birds and random trees. You're a critical thinker, but you're also deeply spiritual. And whilst you doubt yourself often, you have a deep, serene stillness in you that leads other people to trust you implicitly. You love hard, you care about the world, and you truly listen to people, which is a rare skill these days. If I could give you one thing, it would be for you to be able to see yourself the way others do, just for a few minutes, because then you'd truly be unstoppable. Oh, how lovely. Wow, so, I mean, Emily sounds absolutely amazing, and you never, ever can truly see yourself how other people see you especially when they like you you can see it if they don't like you funnily enough mm. much more easily you can see it much more easily but it's hard to not do that very sort of oh ne- never mind it's very kind of you like brush things off yeah and, and you sort of go well, well you would say that because you've got to because you've got a you just have to you don't really mean it but yeah the bad stuff is stays in your claw yeah easy to hear that people people are like awful you're like "Mm, they're probably right but yeah so well emily sounds amazing so the second letter i asked you to prepare is a letter to someone who's no longer around so who would your second letter be to that would have to be my nana marjorie mogford what a name I know. Marjorie Mogford. That is the greatest name ever. That's like a name from Dickens. So tell me about your nana. So she was proper working class Welsh woman with a a massive brood of kids and an even bigger brood of grandkids, great grandkids and some great, great grandkids. I mean, she, she ran Cardiff, essentially. She spawned half of Cardiff. And my sort of abiding memories of her, I'm just realising this now talking about Emily, but as a kid, she she sort of did what Emily does for me as an adult, which is that she just made me feel safe. Coming from the family that I was from, of which I I adored my mum, but, you know, what my TV, BBC series is about is my upbringing. It's a mum with, you know, quite severe bipolar disorder who was very mentally ill and a dad who was a drug addict and a domestically violent both my older brothers, addicts as well, uh, and one of them violent too. And just being in this house that sort of never, ever felt safe. And then the moment we get to my nan's, well, you know, I can, I can still smell it, I can still picture it. Her front door would always be open. So I'd run up, I'd open the front door. And the moment, because she'd have seen me coming down the driveway, she'd always shout out, where's my girl? And then I'd run into the lounge and always she'd be in her armchair, which we call her throne. And I'd run through the door and her face would just light up at the sight of me. And I heard recently this um, Toni Morrison quote, when a child walks in the room, does your face light up? And that's what she did for me. And she made me feel so adored and so special. And as I said to you today, I reread all the letters she sent me. And suddenly... I understood where my delusions of grandeur came from. And it was from her because her letters are just like, 
I love you so much. You're so precious. You're so special. And you're so gorgeous, which was an absolute lie because I was butters. I was <laughs> truly. That cannot be true. I've already said earlier, you have amazing teeth and brilliant hair. So, you know, there, there's no butters about you. I've, I've come into my own. I sort of was, I used to dye my hair black and try to straighten it which you can't, it's constantly raining in Wales, which meant I had a permanent A-line frizz. About five stone heavier, had severe acne. My friends used to call me Toady after Toadfish Rebecca. Uh. <laughs> it was a sight to behold. And, but this woman would look me dead in the eye and be like, you're stunning. You're gorgeous. And so I just, you know, talk about seeing yourself through someone else's eyes. I used to just think, well, I guess I am then because she says I am. Do you know what I mean? And, and thinking about this, there was one particular memory that came to mind when I was like, when is the time that she made me feel most safe? And I was um, 16, I think, and my school had organised that people on doing history GCSE could go on a trip to Washington and New York. It's just incredible. And for some reason, probably because she might have been a bit manic, my mum said I could go. But there was no way we could afford this trip. But she said I could go. And in that kind of teenage way, I just thought, well, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Just sign up. Just say yeah. And then as time went on, it was, we were due to go in the January. That Christmas, my mum had a breakdown and got sectioned on Christmas Day. January was fast approaching. And we hadn't paid for the trip. And we were going to go on like January 8th or something. And the school kept messaging wanting money. And then also I realised my passport had expired. And I was just burying my head further and further in the sand. Because, I, I, you know, I was n not telling anyone at school. I was hiding very deeply the fact that my mum was ill. Didn't want anyone to know that she was mentally ill. Or that we were poor. But we didn't have money and I didn't have a passport. And the teachers were on at me. And I was just like, I do not know what to do. I don't know how to get myself out of this situation. And in the way kids do, I was just burying my head in the sand. And then eventually I turned to my nan and there was like six days to go and said, this is what's gone on. And she came to pick me up with my gramp and she said, right, get in the car. I'm going to drive to Newport. I, I didn't think this was fixable, but she was like, it is fixable. We're going to Newport. They can do you a passport in 48 hours. Me and grandpa are going to pay for the trip. They didn't have any money, but she was like, we're going to pay and we'll sort it out later. It's all going to be fine. We're coming to get you. And their car pulled up and I got into the back of the car. You know, it was like freezing outside. Got into the back of the car. My house didn't have any gas, didn't have any electricity, didn't have any heating. So it was freezing in the house. We were also infested with fleas at the time. So I walk out of this sort of hellhole, see their car, see their faces smiling at me, get in the back. The heater's on, the radio's playing. My grandpa offers me a mint and we pull off to Newport. And my nan just puts her hand back between the seats and, and keeps it on my knee the whole way there. And I just took this breath and was like, oh, there's grown-ups here. Oh, it's going to be okay. They're going to sort it for me. They did. They sorted the passport. They took me to a greasy spoon. They brought me home and I went to bloody New York and I went to Washington. You know, and, and that thought, when I, when I was thinking about her today, I thought of that and I was like, God, never in my life has someone just swooped in and saved me in such a way. She sounds amazing. And the picture that you painted of getting in the car and being given a mint... And that hand into the back of the car is, I think, you know, that moment where someone puts their hand, a grown-up, like you say, when you're a child, 
squeezes your knee in a sort of like it's okay don't worry like whether it's just you're feeling sick in the car or something but like that moment there is something very evocative about the sort of the idea of your grandparents giving you a sweet in the car and and putting their arm into the back to calm you and that idea of the difference between grown-ups and children yeah grown-ups power which can sometimes be used poorly to to command over children to feel safe is huge. And I don't think when you're a grown up and you're in the car with your children, you don't you don't feel that way. You don't you know, you don't you're not conscious of it. That is definitely like a sort of, you know, the sort of hierarchy of sitting in a car of the grown ups and the children mm-hmm. is a lovely image, an absolutely lovely image. Also, the mint thing is just so bloody British, isn't it? My son was saying to me yesterday, we went to see uh, Last Night in Soho, and um, he was saying that the best line ever written in any film or any the, the funniest thing ever written is in Shaun of the Dead when Bernard's been bitten by a zombie and he says, don't worry, I'll just run it under a cold tap. <laughs> that, is yeah. like, that is like, do you want a mint in the car? There is something so quintessentially perfect. It's the cup of tea thing, British people. If someone someone's leg's just been blown off, well, look, I'll put the kettle on. <laughs> just get a cold compress on that, love. Yeah. Be all right in a minute. Like, it's just, it's like, ridiculous. So British. So, it's just that, and these are the things that, like, you know, you, you evoke a feeling in people. But that's, I, I can't help but think that that's why nuns and granddads always had mints mm. in their car. Like, they always, like, there is this sort of, like, it's a treat and it's safe and, like, you shut the doors and it's hermetically sealed and there's something nice and safe about it. Mm. I think it's probably why they had no teeth as well, though, because they sort of... Constantly clacking a, a humbug, which is pure sugar, just clacking that around their teeth. My nan had entirely false teeth, top and bottom, and every night she used to take them out and sit them in a glass of Domestos. Bleach. A full glass of bleach. And then in the morning she'd run it under a cold tap and pop them back in her mouth. I don't know how she was still standing. There again, the cold tap being the answer to all. Yeah. Just run it under a tap and it'll kill all germs. Yeah. She had bloody white teeth, though, I'll tell you that. It was like it was like working-class whitening. But that is now... See, now I can see. You have brilliant teeth, you see. This is a homage to your <laughs> nan. I'm not using Domestos from under the sink, but I learned it all from her, yeah. Well, she sounds amazing and, you know, what a woman. And to be made to feel special, especially when things are difficult at home, you must have just wanted to be with her all the time. All the time. And people often say to me now, how are you okay? How are you doing what you're doing? How did you move to London and claw your way from benefit class into the middle class and become a writer and everything else? And and I can say wholeheartedly because of her, because she told me I could do it, I believed I could. And if, if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would be here. She made me this cocky beast that I am now, just by loving me so hard. Oh, wow. And do you think, I mean, obviously she called you her special girl. Do you think she knew how important she was to you as well as you to her? Yeah, she knew. Uh, Particularly rereading those letters today, which I haven't in a couple of years, she knew. And and it made me feel really good to know that she knew because she said that constantly. She, She would say, you're my special girl. But then in the same letter, she said, you make me feel so special. You always take so much time for me. I'm so grateful I've got you. Thank you for all you do. You know, and it was just so lovely reading those things. It must have been dreadful when she died then. It was a huge loss. Yeah. And I still, what I wouldn't give to see her, you know. 
and for her to say, oh, she did see some of my some of my sort of writing stuff taking off, and and the cards are just like I knew it. I always knew it. I always knew you. Were, I always knew you were special. But then I was thinking. I don't think I was special, but you told me I was special. So it made me think I might be. Do you know what I mean? Um, so she saw some of it, but I would have loved her to have seen in my skin come out. I think I think she would have been proud. And I think she is somewhere feeling proud, you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. In your skin. It, it, you know, if nowhere else, she's in your skin, in your responses, mm-hmm. in the way that you think and feel. So she's still there yeah. um, in you. Yeah, I think that, you know, that I would give anything is... I would literally chop off my right arm to just have 20 minutes on the phone with my mum. Literally. Mm. I'd be like, take it. (laughs) I don't need it. I've got another one. It doesn't get any less painful. It just have bigger gaps in between the pain, I think, when you lose. And sometimes it will catch your breath. So if you were signing off a letter to Marjorie Mogford, woman of the greatest name in in the history of names, how would you sign off your letter? Well, this is a couple of paragraphs. I'm going to get woo-woo on you again because I feel like you expect that from me now. First of all, I would say I miss the way she used to pinch my bum. <laughs> If I came in, my nan would be like, oh, look at that lovely bum. Give it to me. Oh, i got to pinch it. And she'd just grab my bum. Very me too, really. But I do it to my children uh, just to to buck their meat. I just can't. I just want to bite them sometimes. Yeah, that's what she used to do. And I loved it. But I would say on the 23rd of January 2016, you were finally taken from us. I knew the day would come, but nothing could have prepared me for the pain of it. And then two days later, on the 25th of January, your great-grandson, my nephew Travis, was taken from us. I did not know that day would come. And it was only then I realised I'd actually never known pain at all. Not like the pain of losing a child. He had an asthma attack and he couldn't find his pump and that was all it took to snub out his life. A few days after your deaths, a psychic told us, woo-woo, That while she could sense you had died, you hadn't passed over yet. She said that you were with a little boy who had died suddenly, who was confused and scared because he didn't know what had happened to him and that you were going to stay with him to help him pass. I've never quite known if I believe in that stuff or not, but in the following months, it became the raft I clung to in the storm of grief, knowing that you were going to make him feel safe in the way you made me feel safe. Nan, I've led a very blessed life in so many ways, but out of everything, I'm most grateful that I got to know you. She was mega. She was wicked. Yeah, she sounds ace. Totally ace. And to be able to go to New York, because you know, drove you to Newport. Newport really, (laughs) truly is the gateway to dreams. You wouldn't have thought it on the surface. People often think it's a shithole, but it's not. She sounds absolutely amazing and there are millions, I think, women of working class women who held the fabric of their place and their people together, who history forgets and the importance of that sort of role of a sort of matriarch and a, and a queen. A queen of a family is definitely a thing, a queen on her throne Especially where there are, things are difficult. Like. So, certainly where I'm from in Cardiff, like when things get hard, the men walk out. Not necessarily because they don't care, 
but because they've not been trained in the art of emotion, which I think is one of the worst things patriarchy has done. It's more harmful to men. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. It kills men regularly. Yeah, it's why the suicide rates are so high. The men walk out and they try and find something practical to do, like take the bins out or paint the house or something. Um, But the women, my nan, would run in, you know, and uh, yeah, you're so right, that gets overlooked. Yeah, it really does. I remember when I was door knocking in my constituency before I was elected, I knocked on a door opposite my uh, nan's house where my nan had been the only person who ever lived in the house. She'd been dead for 10 years at this point. The woman who lived over the road, Mrs Burroughs, she said, oh, you know, I knew your nan really, really well. She called me Jessie's Jess because my nan was called Jessie. And she told me a story about how she'd had a stillborn baby at home in, like, the 1950s. And my nan just came over the road, ran into the... You know, she ran in. She went into the house. She stayed with her. until She dealt with the fallout of it. There's no medical professionals around her or anything, mm. just... Like, you know, she's my neighbour and she needs me and this is a trauma and I will be there. And she was just like, your nan was just everything to me. I was just like, my God, like, this is wow. 70 years later and this mm-hmm. stays with you. Maybe that's where you learnt that same skill because that's what you do, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm 100% my nan. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Right then, so your third letter is uh, slightly different. So so somebody who maybe doesn't know, you know, the effect that they've had on your life. I was torn here between my little sister Becky and the Spice Girls. (laughs) Specifically, Jerry Hallowell. Oh, really? Controversial. Yeah, yeah. And I think on the surface that probably sounds quite offensive, but I know no one knows more deeply than Becky how 
instrumental the Spice Girls were in my life. So I know Becky won't be offended that she's been lumped in with the Spice Girls. She will understand. I don't think that um, Jerry will... Well, maybe Jerry will hear this. Damn. Jerry will hear it. And this could have been your moment. Just quickly, Jerry, I love you. You've shaped me. Thank you for everything. Um... (laughs) (laughs) That is so brilliant. I'm just going to tell you a small Spice Girls anecdote. I do quite a lot of work with Mel Bay from the Spice Girls because she she is a patron of Women's Aid. So she recently wrote a book about being a victim of domestic abuse and she does loads of campaigning on it. She was coming into Westminster the other day and Maria, who works for me, is 24. And I said, oh, Mel B's coming in later. She was like, oh, who's Mel B? And I was like, you know, Mel B from the Spice Girls. And she was like, oh, um... Which one did they do? Which song? Blasphemy. So, yes, that has spawned us mercilessly taking the piss out of Maria in my office for not knowing. As well, you should. That is unbelievable. <laughs> She's not that young. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? If she was five, my children, they know who the Spice Girls are. Everyone should. So, Becky. Becky. So, we're only 16 months apart. Irish twins, they call it, don't they? Yeah, they do. And I remember from the moment she was born, well, as early as my memory kicks in anyway, just me sort of feeling like, I don't know if a baby should be here. I'm going to have to step in a bit. It's not the right place for a baby, that's for sure. And so from very early on, I just remember thinking, she's mine. Like my mum does some practical things because I can't quite reach the oven yet and I can't change her nappy, but she's just doing that. Becky actually belongs to me. And she was so adorable when she was little, like a little, she had white blonde ringlet hair and dimples and big blue eyes. She was always dirty. She was always in mud. You couldn't keep clothes on her. She only ever had one sock on, bringing in weird worms. Or and I, I was like so pristine and a like prissy little uptight kid. And she was just like in the muck, little tomboy. It took her a really long time to speak. When she did start speaking, she'd only go through me. So she'd sort of whisper to me what she wanted to say because she was so cripplingly shy. And she still is today, really. She'd whisper it to me and I'd turn to all the grown-ups and go, Becky wants orange juice or, you know, whatever. And I remember helping to potty train her as well. She just didn't want to do anything unless I was doing it. And so I remember I was like, well, come on, we'll get on the toilet together. And I used to pull her up onto the toilet with me and we'd have one bum cheek on each. And I'd be like, now we can go. God knows what my mother's bathroom floor looked like. But we sort of strip all our clothes off and just, because you know when you're a kid, you think you've got to be nude to go to the toilet. And I'd sort of pull her up onto the toilet with me and we'd sit there and go together. So we were just sort of like entwined. And we shared a single bed for a very, very long time. And probably until we were about nine and eight, we shared this single bed together, just spooning. She's my anchor and she's my... She's just mine, is how I thought it, thought of her. And I still do. And when I had to move from primary school to high school without her for a year, I developed OCD. I, I wouldn't have known to call it that at the time, but I know it as an adult. I was terrified that I, if I couldn't see her, something was going to happen to her. Like, it's my job to keep her alive. It's my job to keep her safe. And I couldn't see her. And so I started every day bribing her because we had this tuck shop in the high school and used to get pound dinner money. And I'd say to her, I will spend all my pound buying you sweets, a space baton and an ice bun 
if you promise me you're going to come straight home from primary school. You're not allowed to talk to anyone. You're not allowed to dither. You're not allowed to go out and play. You have to come straight home. And if you do, you get an ice bun and a space button. And she'd just be like, yeah, all right, mate, calm down. Yeah, I'll come for an ice bun. Like, why are you so intense? And I'd run home from high school, like sweating, heart racing, being like, she's not going to be there. She's not going to be there. She's not going to be there. And when I opened the front door and she was there, I'd be like, thank God. And, uh, you know, I just sort of felt like I've got to keep this girl alive. She, by the way, didn't need me and never asked this of me. And this is quite, this is quite telling of our relationship that I, I'm forcing myself on her all the time. And then she eventually moved to high school and things got easier in terms of my OCD. So I was like, I can see, I can see the little cow now. I know where she is. But in other ways, that's the point where we became fractured because becoming teenagers in the home that we were in, going through the trauma that we were going through, it just flung us in different directions and we handled it in different ways. And she went off the rails and I didn't. And, you know, she wound up getting expelled and I think she hit a teacher over the head with a chair once, <laughs> which, well, you know, it's quite a funny story in hindsight that she had the guts to throw a teacher at a chair, uh, to throw a chair at a teacher, sorry. But, she, you know, she was hurting and I was hurting and it sort of tore us apart. Until the point then that I kind of, I left Cardiff and decided to come to London and I just buggered off on this new life. We never fell out, but we just have had been distant for years. And it was only then through all of our family dying that, you know, we've sort of started coming back together slowly but surely. But we're still so different. But I saw this therapist who was like, do you know what you actually need to do is you need to stop trying to save her and actually just start trying to listen to her. And that was such a big revelation she just means the world to me. And I don't know if she knows it because I did bugger off and become middle class and, you know, just do all, do all these fancy things and live in London, which she just thinks is shit. She just like could not give a shit about London, mate, full of wankers. But she's so caring. She, she works in an old people's home and she looks after 12 hour shifts doing all the stuff, but she does it without a second thought. But then out in the street, if a bitch looks at her the wrong way, she'll deck them. You know, she's just solid. And I just think she's so cool and she's so brilliant and she's so talented. And I don't know if she knows that I think that. It's um, difficult when you take different paths to your family, especially in cases of trauma. I have a brother who um, is like my one because I've got two older ones and there's two little ones. And like, he's my one, like you say, mm -hmm. like he, that, that one's my one. The other two, you can have each other. That's not my business. Uh, this one's my one. And my one went very, very badly off the rails. But it is very hard not to think that you should try and save them. And to realise how arrogant to think it is that you could. Yeah, ex exactly, yeah. But it is sometimes those moments where somebody just says something to you. I remember being like, oh, God, you know, my brother gets all the attention by being naughty and I get nothing for, by being good. Uh, and my, I remember my mum just saying, would you swap places? Do you want to swap places? That's a good retort. Yeah, being you is its own benefit. Don't be thinking that there's some benefit to be had by being somebody else. You, you get the rewards of being good. So uh, Becky now lives in Cardiff still. Yeah, yeah. And has a happy life now? She's doing all right. You know, we've, we've been through a lot. And I think in many ways, uh, for, all, for all of her seeming hard as nails, I think she's actually extremely sensitive, more so than me. And so therefore, I think our upbringing hurt her more deeply that's not to say it didn't hurt me because it did but 
I'd love to see how things would have gone for Becky if she'd have been in a family who could have, like, nourished her sensitivity instead of just hurting her. How does she feel about you writing and talking about your family? Because obviously that's, like, a difficult um, thing to, you know, navigate. Mm. She's so proud of me and she's just been my biggest cheerleader. She also was the only person who ever just used to batter me. But she's also been my biggest cheerleader. And, and she was the kind of, she was the deciding factor when I was making In My Skin. I sent her the scripts first and was like, you've got to read them and give me your blessing and tell me, do I need to change anything? Do you remember it differently? And the moment she said, I love it, don't change a thing. That meant more to me than anything else. Yeah, it's it's a difficult it is a difficult thing to navigate talking about your families and mm. conscripting them almost as well to the story because yeah. I feel like my family is a conscript to my life and that they do, they they have to do it sort of choicelessly and a lot of uh, mm. they don't necessarily but then you know it is the story that is yours as well um, so it's very good that she feels that way. And so you don't think that she knows that you feel that way about her? She knows I love her and she knows I'd do anything for her. She knows she can pick up the phone and I'll always be there. But I don't think she knows necessarily the impact she's had on my life, that I am who I am because of her, because I had my partner in crime, because she's always been there, because she's supported me and backed me up and... You know, even if I did stuff and she was furious with me or hated my guts, if anyone else crossed me, she was up in their face being like, don't touch my sister, I'll kill you. She's still like that now. I've got to be like, chill, man. And having that little Rottweiler by my side has just been the most wonderful thing. I just think she's brilliant. She's so funny. Growing up with her, like we laughed so much and having that little comedian in the house with me was just it made everything better. So how would you sign off the letter to Becky? I would say, Becky, little ragamuffin, as we called her when she was little, I've adored you since the moment you were born, and I always will. In moving away from home and Cardiff, I had to renege on my promise to myself that I would always keep you safe. You didn't ask for that promise, but I had decided it was my duty. And you haven't said so, but I think you must have felt abandoned by me when I left. But I got into a point where to save myself, I had to go and I had to sever myself as much as I could because there was just so much pain. But it has always remained true that you are my favourite person in this entire world. And I know I'm bossy and I know I'm a snob and a know-it-all, but you're stuck with me. Nothing you say or do will ever get rid of me, I'm afraid. You're always going to be my little ragamuffin. So, Emily, Marjorie Mogford, and Becky, and side note, Jerry Halliwell. Jerry Halliwell's really important. <laughs> Jerry Halliwell is very important. Honourable mention to Jerry Halliwell. All strong women. All yeah. the choices are women with the stories of womanhood and the experiences of what that comes with and your role in the world making them inspirational so all good women did you find anything that surprised you when putting the letters together it's not a surprise to me that they're all women let's say that I think um, my life is a tapestry of incredible women who've come in and helped me prop me up supported me saved me 
so that's not a surprise to me. I think it's just be I've I've actually found this like a really cathartic process. I was a bit daunted at first because I was like, oh my god, what, what am I going to say? And then the moment I started thinking about it, I was like. I've got so much I want to say and so, so much I need to say thank you for. It's been lovely. We don't do it enough. We don't, yeah. you know, take time, especially in my line of work uh, and yours, in fact. The tension is the thing that makes a story or a messaging push through and we very rarely stop to think about the moments of Greece and the the people who did the right thing and were kind and mm-hmm. it's... Um, it's nice to stop and th- say thank you to people. Yeah. And we all loved it, didn't we, when we were clapping and everything. We should just do that more with people, like, you know, people tell people how we feel about them and thank them for things would be, you know, no-one's ever going to mind that. No, it's easy to pretend we're one-man bands, one-woman bands, and it's nice to just be like, I did it all myself, but it's very rarely true, you know? It cannot be true, can it? I mean, mm-hmm. unless you are a total enigma. <laughs> yeah. Total enigmas. I've never met any. They'd probably register on the psychopath scale. Almost certainly. I remember a man was saying to my husband, oh, you know, I know that... Uh, it was a man from the Labour Party saying, I know that um, she wouldn't be able to do all the things that she does if it weren't for you helping her. And my husband took real umbrage and was just, he just said, my wife is brilliant all by herself. And I was sort of proud of him for sort of defending my honour um, and not being like, don't patronise me just because I look after my children when they're my children. This is not something that you would ever say to a woman. That's what he was getting across. But I just said to him, that is absolutely not true, sweetheart. <laughs> I'd not be brilliant without you. I'd be bang average at best. I'd be middling. Yeah, fair to middling. Yeah. On a good day. <laughs> uh, you you are actually doing a lot here to prop this up. <laughs> yeah, you, you. This is going to fall right on over without you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the fact they tried to defend me. Anyway, it, Kaylee, it has been an absolute pleasure, and honestly, your nan sounds just like a total, total legend. Like what yeah. a woman that is. The the warmth of the story of getting a mint and being, having your knee squeezed in the car will stay with me for the rest of the day whilst I go and vote. Everybody needs a Marjorie Mogford, so thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.